Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 226 of the Spalier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Maria Berardi Coladonado. She's an SLP practicing at an acute care hospital in New Jersey, working with the adult geriatric population. She serves on the SIG-13 Professional Development Committee and is a certified dementia practitioner. For fun, she runs an SLP Instagram account at dysphagia underscore delight. She started her career in skilled nursing in 2017 and transitioned into acute care about two years later. Her first opportunity in acute care was at a small community-based hospital, and she was hired as a staff SLP and eventually transitioned to lead SLP at this facility. She was a member of the palliative care team and the stroke committee. At the end of 2021, she transitioned to staff SLP at a level one trauma center for greater educational opportunities and to work with a larger team. Her special interests include the role of the SLP in end-of-life care and palliative care, specifically advanced dementia, and critical care, specifically post-extubation dysphagia. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile-fused business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Maria. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell people a little bit about yourself. Okay. So my name is Maria Berardi Colbonato. I'm a speech language pathologist practicing at an acute care hospital in New Jersey, where I work with the adult and geriatric population. I serve on the SIG-13 Professional Development Committee, and I am a certified dementia practitioner. For fun, I run an SLP Instagram account at Dysphagia Delight. I started my career in the skilled nursing facility setting in 2017 and transitioned into the acute care setting about two years after that. My first opportunity in acute care was at a small community-based hospital. 
I was hired as staff SLP and eventually transitioned to lead SLP at this facility. I was a member of both the palliative care team and stroke committee while there. And a few months ago, I transitioned to staff SLP at a nearby level one trauma center to work with a larger team and with higher acuity cases. My special interests include SLP involvement in end-of-life care, palliative care, advanced dementia, and SLP involvement in critical care. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? We are going to speak about my transition from the subacute nursing facility setting to acute care setting. I think it's such a common desire. I think, you know, it's, it's, there's lots of sniff jobs out there, you know, whether we like to say that or not, but you know, and the reality is that sometimes that's what's available. And if you want to get into a medical setting or you want to get into more of an acute care setting, this sort of has to be the place that you start, that you get some, some experience, some exposure. So I just love following your story of working in the SNF and now you've finally moved into your acute care job. Yes. Um, it was quite the journey. Yeah. And I just would like to start this off by saying that um, I really valued my time in skilled nursing facility and skilled nursing facility should not be viewed as a stepping stone. Yes. Um, because Thank you. ultimately, yes. So ultimately, you know, the patients need our help in all these settings. And it's important for there to be brilliant, talented speech pathologists across the continuum of care. Yeah. I, I love my, my sniff settings. I, that was my jam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, for sure. So where should we start? Okay, so let's start. So my goal early on in my academic career was to work in the acute care setting. I worked towards my goal, this goal during my academic career by tailoring my internships to this setting. In my undergraduate career, I did about 100 hours volunteering and observing at a local level one trauma center. Here, I was in both acute care and inpatient rehab with licensed speech pathologists. Essentially, I didn't really have any hands-on work at that point. It was just observing, learning, and soaking in some knowledge. Then during my graduate um, career, I had an adult practicum at that same level one trauma center, and now I gained hands-on experience with instrumental swallowing assessments, critical care, head and neck cancer patients, trach and vent, etc., Lastly, while in graduate school, there were two different dysphagia courses offered, one of which offered hands-on experience at a local nursing home. So I did opt to enroll in that, and that gave me some feeding experience with nursing home residents. So fast forward now, I got my master's degree in May of 2017 and began searching for a medical CFY with the adult and geriatric population in the heavily saturated New York and New Jersey area. Yeah. (laughs) So while here, um, during this time, rather, I worked on finalizing MBSIMP, the student version, to be a more competitive applicant. I had my resume and cover letter, letter reviewed by both the career center at my college and a professor, which served as my mentor. And I expressed interest to my supervisor at my clinical placement regarding a position. Unfortunately, no positions available. So that was a little bit of a dead end. Yeah. So, and this is kind of really what I wanted to speak about. So throughout this process, many of my peers and medical speech language pathologists advised me to avoid the skilled nursing facility setting at all costs, even if it meant moving out of state 
um, as a CFY in this setting would make it extremely challenging to transition into acute care. Um, some went as far to even say it would not be possible. So this was kind of discouraging. I was advised to be patient, wait for this position. I was about two months into my search. I had no luck finding a hospital CFY. Um, either people just weren't getting back to me or just saying, you know, they wanted experience. They were not taking CFs at that time. So I began to question if the advice I received was realistic. Um, waiting months to years for income, moving out of state. I needed to start earning money and I was unwilling to move far away from my loved ones. My now husband and I were in a serious relationship. We were envisioning our life together. I was unwilling to sacrifice all of our time together for a job. I felt that this would blur the work-life balance lines that would eventually take a toll on my mental health. So, yes, I was at a crossroads. So I ultimately about, I think I waited about two months. And then I began expanding my search to include skilled nursing facility with a focus on quality supervision. Awesome. So now I finally began receiving some calls from recruiters and facilities interested in my application after about two months of hearing nothing and just feeling discouraged. Yeah. I ultimately accepted a CFY in the skilled nursing facility setting at the end of June 2017, and I was slated to begin that August. I was hired by a private company owned by two SLPs that employed approximately 10 speech pathologists and placed them in nursing homes within the New York area. I was fortunate to have both of these brilliant SLPs serve as my mentors, one of which was uh, board certified in swallowing and swallowing the disorders. The other was competent in fees. Awesome. Yeah. So I interviewed with them both. I was taken back by their knowledge base. I still remember their interview questions that made me realize this is not going to be easy despite, you know, what, how people make it yeah, out to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for example, I was provided with a speech sample and was asked to diagnose the type of aphasia within the interview. And the other SLP drew a face with an asymmetry and asked me to pinpoint the cranial nerves involved. <laughs> so. I immediately knew, you know, that reflected, okay, this is going to be a learning experience. They're, they're really smart. They, they're willing to teach. That meant a lot in taking, you know, a position for me. Yeah. Let me, can I, can I ask you, Maria? So what made you know that you wanted to find a CF that had really quality supervision? Cause I feel like when I mentioned that to a lot of grad students, they're like, well, what do you mean? Isn't everything going to be quality supervision? And it's like, no, and in, in our you know, in a perfect world it would be, but sometimes it's not. So I would love to hear just sort of how you knew that that was like a non-negotiable for you. So I did not. So finding a job was important to me for multiple reasons. Um, I did not want to sacrifice, and I felt that the clinical fellowship was the last part of you know really supervised and mentored education. And I was not willing to give that up because I felt that that would ultimately shape my career. So it was really important for me to be able to have that feedback and have that learning experience. Not to say after the nine months learning ends, but it's not as structured. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I think that's just such an important point to to point out because I think so many people think, okay, this is a job with just extra you know, eyes on me, you know, people being extra critical. And it's really not supposed to be viewed as that. It's supposed to be 
a learning experience and you're supposed to be able to lean on your mentor for advice and education. And it's supposed to be just a very open mentorship opportunity. And for some people just sort of skew it as this is just a nine month job and I need to just get adequate supervision, but you really want to look for something that's going to offer you so much more than just eyes on you for nine months. Yeah. And I would kind of also compare it to when a medical student is completing a residency, you know, that, they're really depending on that attending or, you know, their immediate supervisors to help shape them into, you know, the medical professional that they aspire to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so here we are. So I was enjoying my CFY in the nursing home while continuing to work toward my goal of acute care. So what did I do to kind of make my resume and application for acute care worth looking at essentially? I continued to work on MBSIMP student version. That took me quite some time. Um, some of my colleagues and peers were able to finish that in one month or two. Took me a lot of time. And I felt mainly because I was not really exposed to the modified barium swallow study during my job. It was harder for me to apply it. Um, so I enrolled in a fees course and began training in fees. I enrolled in a McNeil dysphagia therapy course, became certified in that. I was able to apply that within subacute. I stayed up to date with the research by reading articles. And this one's real, this point I would say is really important. I began networking. Um, so, so networking, um, establishing relationships with acute care speech language pathologists to discuss our mutual patients, um, to help them improve therapeutically. What comes with that, though, is developing friendships and saying, hey, you know, I'm interested one day in transitioning to the acute care settings. At this time, I didn't have availability in my schedule to observe, um, but I do know of some colleagues who have done that or have taken on a per diem role. And that was essentially facilitated by a relationship that they had created with the acute care SLP. And I did have one or two SLPs advised me about opportunities at different acute care hospitals. They weren't right for me just based off of commute time, but um, it did open some windows, yeah. some doors rather. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so fast forward, I was in that setting for about two years, and now I felt that it was time for me to start really applying to acute care hospitals. And I um, was fortunate enough to get a position at a community-based hospital in New Jersey. And there was an excellent SLP willing to train me in modified barium swallow study and familiarize me with acute care. Uh, we are actually great friends today, and we still work together at, at a different hospital. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. Um, so, so let me ask you, so you stayed on at that at the SNF that you were at for after your CF? You stayed on for I another did. extra year. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I want to, I want to back up. I want to talk a little bit more about, about your CF experience. Was it everything you thought it would be? Was it everything? Was it worse than you thought it would be? Was it better than you thought it would be? And, you know, obviously you stayed on there, so it wasn't terrible. Yeah. Um, much to my surprise, it was better than I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I and we'll discuss this a bit later on, but there were some invaluable skills that I acquired in the CFY and after the CFY that I feel have ultimately fueled my success in acute care and in my career. Um, so I am forever thankful for, you know, 
the supervision and the experience that I received. And actually looking back, I would not change my CFY setting. So I'm, I'm happy that, you know, I stuck out with that subacute CFY. So we can actually go into some of the skills that I acquired in that setting that I feel have fueled my success in acute care. So I actually gained experience to a variety of medical conditions. Um, I was exposed to stable managed conditions as well as acute exacerbation of illnesses such as CHF and COPD. Um, I was exposed to acute illnesses such as new stroke, um, signs of respiratory failure, et cetera. And that I feel like is an important to detect because there's kind of this notion that everyone is stable and well-managed in the nursing home. But on the flip side, um, these are patients that have a lot of medical conditions. And it is not rare that a stable patient in a nursing home develops signs of a stroke and you are the one to detect it or a patient, you know, is demonstrating signs of respiratory compromise. And you are the one to say, Hey, this patient is breathing 40 breaths per minute. We need some help here. Yeah. Yeah. So despite what some people may think, these are not all extremely stable patients and you do get some, you know, triaging experience within that setting. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out because I think that was something that surprised me a lot too. I think I sort of went into it thinking exactly what you said, you know, they're going to be stable and we're just going to be able to work on our goals and everything's going to be great and I'll go home. And there really is just so much more medical complexity in, in SNFs than I think a lot of people realize. Yes. And my, um, you know, due to the nature of the setting, we didn't really have any fancy monitors, you know, that were monitoring yeah. vitals. Yeah. Um, I remember my supervisor taught me how to manually count a respiratory rate. And that is a skill that I still use today. And I teach students that because even in the acute care setting, you don't always have that fancy uh, monitor for vitals. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what else did I acquire in the nursing home? Treatment skills, um, you know, revising goals for months, um, really helping patients meet the goals that are important to them. This is a big one. I would say ethics and informed consent. I really was able to learn, you know, how to properly document informed consent, how to go about getting it in this setting. Um, this is very important, even within acute care. Uh, advocacy, advocating for patients, their families, and their loved ones, again, very important. In addition to subacute, each facility that I worked at, because I worked at ultimately three different ones, sometimes simultaneously within two years. Um, let, let me back you up. I am curious. Did you know sort of all of the nuances of informed consent before you started in this position? Or did you learn them along the way or did you learn after? I learned them along the way. Um, You know, I quickly found that, oh, as I was mentioning, I was working in subacute, but there was also long-term care patients that I was seeing. And, you know, a long-term care patient, some of these patients lived at the facility for seven years. um, And for one reason or the other, you know, could have been on a modified diet. And, Maybe they just, you know, were not interested in it. And it was my job after 
completing appropriate tests, seeing if the recommendations were sound to see if they actually want this, let's say, modified diet. Um, what do they want? So what is important for them? Because I had one patient tell me, you know, I have nothing left worth living for. I live in a nursing home. Everything that, you know, makes me happy is gone. The only thing that brings me pleasure in life is food, and I am unwilling to give that up. And you have to kind of try to relate and do what you can to, you know, make them a bit happier where they are in their lives. Yeah, because I think, you know, so many people, you, you just still hear, you know, so many people say working in SNFs, it's all about waivers and, you know, which can be considered coercion and, you know, what is informed consent and how do you do that? And obviously there's, I have other episodes on that if people are wondering, but for some reason it's just so prevalent in SNFs, like just make them sign a waiver and, you know, get it over with, but that's really not how it's supposed to be. And I, you know, I, I loved, you know, following you on Instagram and seeing really your patient-centered and patient-focused conversations that you have about, you know, it's, it's up to them. It's up to their choices. It's up to their family and their culture and what's important to them at mealtimes. And these are conversations that we have to be having. So, um, you know, I love that you got experience to that so young as a CF and yeah. Yeah. And that's something that is 100% relevant to acute care. And I feel very equipped to handle those situations. And, you know, I find sometimes that even attending physicians, you know, in the area of swallowing aren't extremely, you know, aware of the difference between the waiver and informed consent. So I think like even helping to bring out, you know, some education regarding that helps us to do what's best for the patient and their families. Yeah. Awesome. So, but with that, I also, you know, acquired a lot of valuable skills around communication at the nursing home, whether it be with other healthcare providers, with families, with acute care SLPs, with residents, et cetera. Um, you know, myself and physicians or family members, it isn't, there's not agreement 100% of the time regarding treatment plans or even necessities for instrumental swallow studies and really just developing those communication skills for and advocating for, you know, the patient is a pretty critical skill that we can use throughout our career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a couple of more things here that I, um, skills that I acquired in the skilled nursing facility setting interpretation of modified barium swallow study reports. So although you're not completing it, you are still tasked, with analyzing, you know, the report and creating a customized plan for that patient based off of impairment to help them succeed. Yeah. So aside from interpreting modified barium report, I was fortunate enough to be able to begin some fees training. I did not complete it in the setting. I'm actually going to pick it up at my current job. I'm slated to begin training next week, actually. Awesome. Yay. Awesome. Yes. But I was able to get that foundational course, assist with some passes, and assist with some analysis while at that CFY and initial skilled nursing facility setting. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, you know, I love what you said because I think, I think being able to view those and interpret those and analyze those is so valuable. Um, you know, I, I remember just in my days, um, you know, I, I had when I was, working in the SNF and I had the hospital SLP, you know, said, well, I sent over the video and this is what I found. And, you know, and I'm like, I don't know that I agree with those recommendations though, you know, and, and I've had other episodes on here about, 
you know, what to do if you disagree with recommendations. But I think you being able to know the patient, you're someone that is seeing this patient every single day. If, if the hospital SLP is, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but quote unquote, just seeing the patient for that test, they don't know all the other nuances that are involved. And I think it's so important for that SLP that's been seeing the patient every single day and working with them every single day to have the ability to view and interpret and analyze what's going on because it just helps to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think it's also just a really good way to look at like baseline data versus progress. You know, okay, let's look at your modified from two months ago. How do things look? Oh, you know, you weren't even able to swallow that texture. You know, things like that. There's just so much that can go into having the ability to interpret these videos, even if you are not the one doing it. So I love that you said that because I encourage so many, you know, new grads, even, you know, I, I know now, thank goodness, MBS and PSS student edition that so many grad students take advantage of, but I think it's just so important that even if you are not going to be doing them personally, being able to view them, understand what you're looking at and understand the repercussions that it have on your treatment is just so important. Yes. I think that's often overlooked and I really would was go would go as far as to say that's something someone can bring up in an interview for an acute care position or in a cover letter or you know kind of put it on a resume it's a skill and not every acute care therapist you know has worked with the patient therapeutically with a modified barium swallow study making goals off of the impairments for months on end it's a bit different yeah. This is aside from inpatient rehab. I'm focusing really on that strict acute care physician. Yeah. Okay. And lastly, I feel that most importantly, I have developed more of a familiarity with the continuity of care. Um, while in acute care, I'll frequently ask myself, how will this impact, you know, this patient on a long-term basis? And this is specific to those nursing home admissions um, that we get. And we get a lot of patients that do come from surrounding nursing homes um, that have difficulty swallowing, try to get modified barium swallows or fiber optic endoscopic swallow studies completed, you know, when appropriate, and really keep that open line of communication open with the other speech pathologists in the nursing home setting to help, you know, maximize outcomes for that patient. Yeah, I, I love that. I think sometimes we don't look at the big picture as much as we should. Um, like you said, you know, how do my recommendations today or how does what, what I do impact, you know, the long term of the patient? And I think I think asking ourselves those questions, having those conversations with the patients and family would probably change our course of treatment a lot more often than we'd like to admit. Right. For sure. Because we are seeing in acute care this patient maybe if we're lucky three times on a good day, yeah, <laughs> you know, before yeah. they're out in the hospital, out, you know, back into the community or the nursing home and that nursing home speech therapist will be the one really working with that patient, um, you know, to help them and families meet the goals. Okay. So ultimately my hope moving forward is that there is a culture shift um, regarding nursing home speech therapists I would hope that in general, you know, the field is less competitive and more collaborative to improve patient care and job satisfaction. As I had said a bit earlier, you know, there's this notion that acute care is the place to be. Um, the reality is that acute care is not a perfect setting and it is not for everyone. 
the skilled nursing facility setting is not a stepping stone and should not be regarded as one. Our patients need us throughout all varying levels of care. You know, do what makes you happy, respect each other. We should be willing to teach and open to learning from the SNF SLP. We are all working diligently to promote independence and improve quality of life for patients. And I've spoken to a lot of um, really dissatisfied speech therapists in other settings who are trying to get into the acute care setting because that is their goal. And they just feel that, you know, their skills are disregarded as an SNF SLP, especially. And I don't think that, you know, is right. I think we should really kind of open our minds and see, you know, what everyone has to bring to the table. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I've worked in some amazing sniffs, like just amazing. And I, and I think that's what I struggle with is I just hate to see people say that they're in, you know, a horrible place because I've worked in those too. But I think if it's a horrible place, look elsewhere. Like I, I promise you, they're not all terrible, <laughs> um, but I think it's also, you know, it's, it's up to us to change that culture, you know, to make a culture shift. Like are you know, are you advocating for as much as you could be? Are you asking for the equipment you need? Are you, you know, educating and doing in services? And, you know, I know these are all things that people don't realize that you do as an SLP, but I think we, you do them a lot more often than you think, you know, even in the hospitals, you're, you're advocating for things. You're talking to the doctors all the time. It doesn't mean that this is just something you're going to do in the SNF and you'll never have to do it again. Um, it's something you have to do across all settings. And, and I think all medical professionals have to do that and have to have more understanding that this is part of the job. You, you're working as part of a team and, and you have to advocate for your specific profession and why it, you know, meets the needs of your patient while working, you know, amongst a team with a lot of hands on deck. Right. And that's a really good point. Because um, I had said earlier, acute care is not the perfect setting. And it's, you know, there's challenges in every setting that we will work. And, you know, I've had some ethical dilemmas in the nursing home. I've had ethical dilemmas in the hospital. It's, there's no, you know, perfect setting and perfect job you know, we have to inform ourselves, educate and advocate for the patient, no matter the setting. Um, And I I must say, um, one of the main things that I miss about working in the nursing home is the relationships that are established with those residents and their families. You really get, um, whether they improve or not therapeutically, you really get to develop this relationship that in acute care, most of the time does not happen because of the really high turnover rate. Yeah. Yeah. That that was something that I learned early on, worked in the SNFs, but then I also did PRN in the hospital setting. And I was like, no, like I like getting to know the same people. You know, I like going to see Betty at seven 30 for breakfast every morning and, you know, hearing about the soap opera she watched. And like, I love that relationship that I had with those patients and, and, and sure, acute care is totally cool. It's, it's, you see some really cool, crazy stuff, but like you said, you just don't establish those relationships that you do in, in SNF. So there's, you know, there's, I, I don't even want to say pros and cons, but it, it's just, they're, they're different. It's apples and oranges. <laughs> I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> and I do love my acute care job. Um, yeah. you know, I like the different medical complexities I work with. I like that I work with a larger team of speech therapists. I essentially worked in isolation or, you know, with yeah, one other yeah. person in the nursing home, yeah. um, which could get crazy. 
so I like having that team, you know, to learn from and to collaborate with. So, yeah, you know, like you said, apples and oranges, and it really depends on your personal goal and what you, you know, would like in your career. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Any other advice you would give, you know, new grad or younger clinician that's wanting to transition into acute care? New grad or you said CFY? Or just, or clinician and anybody maybe just wanting to make the the transition. Um, I guess if you're looking to make the transition into acute care, really sit down and think about the skills that you have acquired, um, whether it be through graduate practicums or internships or, you know, other jobs, really think of some really relevant skills. Is it, you know, patient advocacy? Is it, you know, informed consent? Is it communication? Things of that nature. Um, Really try to get a list down of what you're good at, what you've learned. Stay up to date with the research. Um, Take any courses that you feel may be relevant to the setting. And networking. Establish those relationships with speech pathologists in, you know, surrounding acute care hospital settings. Because if there's an opening and you call at the right time or if they have your resume, you know, it may just be your lucky day. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, what, what advice would you give to someone that is struggling, like has been wanting to find an acute care position for two years and just seems to be coming up with roadblocks? I know, you know, I've talked to clinicians before that are like, I'm just so sick of throwing money at different you know, CEU courses and things like that. And I get that, you know, but I, I'd love to hear if you have any, any advice on how to hang in there or pivot or yeah. Hmm. How to pivot. Let's see here. Any, just any advice you would give to someone that's looking for acute care? What would you tell them to keep them to keep being persistent, to keep looking? So continuing CEUs can be very costly. It may not be feasible uh, for all, Hanging in there, maybe by reading some articles that are available for free that are relevant, maybe joining some um, journal clubs. I believe MedSLP Collective has one. And, you know, that can help stay up to date with the research and ultimately networking. Um, kind of hang in there, try to work towards your goals and really establish, um, try to establish relationships with other SLPs in other settings. Um, networking can actually really help you to get, you know, where you'd like to be. Yeah. I love that you keep bringing up networking. Obviously I think it's so important too, but I've heard of so many quote unquote, like success stories of SLPs looking for a job and like the job wasn't even posted yet, but someone at the facility might call and say, you know, Hey Maria, I know you've been looking, we have this job posting coming soon. Are you interested? Um, You know, and even on the medicine collective, we have our job board too. And people have, found each other that way or moved to a new city and reached out and said, you know, Hey, I'm moving to the area. Do you know any place looking? And I I've heard stories of people on the collective being like, Oh yes, there is this job opening. Like it hasn't even been posted yet. Apply things like that. So it's, it's, it really is, you know, as much as people hate to say it, it's about who, you know, it's about who you've, you know, planted that seed and, and, you know, sort of what I like to say, just speak it into existence, tell the universe, Hey, I'm looking for this acute care job and tell everybody else that, you know, along the way. (laughs) It's so true. And I had, um, when I was a lead speech pathologist at the other hospital, I had people, whether they'd be uh, like looking for a CFY or a staff position, just email me and they would email, you know, 
able to contact the hospital, ask for my email address, and they would just express their interest. They would attach a resume. And even if I didn't have, you know, an availability at the time, if someone left, I would say, oh, let me go check my email. So-and-so had sent me a resume. And there was one instance where I pulled up the resume and forwarded it to the director, you know, prior to them even clearing the position, kind of saying, hey, if we are going to open up this position again, look at this person, seems like a great applicant, expressed interest a couple of months ago. Um, so that could really help. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that a lot. So awesome. Any final thoughts, Maria? I, you know, I, I love hearing your story. I love, you know, I love that we didn't just bash sniffs because, you know, I love them. So I love yes. comparing them like apples and oranges. Yeah. Yeah. So any, any final thoughts for the people, any encouraging words for people that are going through the stuckness right now and aren't sure when their acute care job's going to show its face? Hang in there. Um, be persistent and do not undervalue yourself and your skills. Um, because I can guarantee that you've developed excellent skills in nursing home setting or whichever setting, you know, you are in. As I mentioned earlier, we are tasked with promoting independence and improving quality of life for our patients. So wherever you are, you are improving quality of life for patients. And that is very important. Awesome. Thank you, Maria. I love that so much. You're welcome. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.